0: in the hall which is uh, behind that wall. that is warming up. Do you mind if I take a photograph? (laughs) People are usually taking pictures this way, you know, and I'm in the habit of taking pictures this way. Now don't forget to smile, right. It says, for my wife's benefit. There we go. That wasn't painful, was it? Well, uh, we have a nice full day today. I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here. Uh, I'm going to say thank you to the worship team. It, it's been a wonderful experience just to, to have that worship. Yeah. So give them a hand, would you? I, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of worship these days just seems to me to be noise. But the, the, you, you, you have really made it a meaningful uh, experience. I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that there is always a shield around the, uh, the drummer. I, you know, I, I like playing drums and stuff, but it interests me. And my oldest grandson, when he was about 16 or 17, I went along to the Saturday night service at our church, which is the contemporary worship service. <clears throat> and um, our drummer has a glass sort of cage around him. And while we were singing, I leaned over to Vincent and I said, Vincent, Vincent, why do you think they have that glass thing around the rama? And Vincent is much taller than me. My grandsons are all six six, you know. He leaned over to me and says, Papa, Papa. And he goes into this long lecture about sound waves. And how over, you can see through the glass, but sound can't go through the glass. It gets. This is while the worship's going on. He's giving me this long lecture on sound. sound this is me, engineer type, you know, and, and how the sound bounces back and and long. I said, oh, uh, uh, Vincent, shh, no, shh, no, no, nah. bulletproof glass. <laughs> 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 so we can't shoot the drummer. If he gets out of control. Well, thank you. Whoever the drummer is here, we don't need to shoot you. (laughs) It's it's a wonderful time. Well, the topic for today is a... Let me just get this going. Uh, I cannot begin to tell you how important I think this topic is for the church today i can't begin to emphasize how absolutely important it is um, the it's it's like a tsunami am i sort of sounding the warning of an Impending tsunami. We go, my wife and I go to Hawaii. We're fortunate we go there quite often. Hawaii, Hawaiian people love my wife. Oh, my word, she is their darling. So we get to do a lot of conferences there and so on. And in, in Hawaii, all around, there's long poles and huge loudspeakers throughout the whole, because there's the tsunami warning system. They are so vulnerable. They've had several... And I wonder, I ask myself, am, am I just sort of um, sounding the warning of an impending tsunami? And a year or two ago, I would, I would have imaged it that way. I'm, 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 I'm that sound system. The, 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 the signals are wailing loud and clear. Tsunami coming, tsunami coming, Called depression. But you know, my feeling now, today, these days... The tsunami has arrived. It's almost as if it's too late. There's little we can do to hold it back. So this is, uh, <clears throat> and I, I, I say this con- you know, considerately. This is not, I'm not trying to be hysterical yet. Don't need to get attention just for hysteria's sake. It is a an absolutely important, vital topic for us in the church to pay attention to. A, because it's part of the the, the Salami is part of the world, and we're part of that. But B, I'm sorry to say this, the church is only making it worse. We ought to be the safe haven. We ought to be that place of refuge that people can go to in a world that is crazy and and, and just find a sane place. And that isn't always the case. Surviving life these days is often a matter of surviving depression. When I started clinical practice in the late 60s, built a consulting room on my home. I still worked as an engineer. I, it was a tent-making thing. by bi, Bivocational, you know, work a bit so I could do the other. I, the, the psychology could never... I could not charge fees that compensated for the enormous salary I got as an engineer. That, so I worked as an engineer during the day and I played psychologist after 5 o'clock up until late in the evening. I'll say more about it tomorrow when I get into the topic of burnout, because I burned out real bad. But when I first started clinical practice, I dreaded depressed people. Oh, I dreaded them. I, I, I early on, got hooked by this topic. For several reasons. One, because, I don't know, somehow I... In, you know, we all sort of have our strengths... Uh, uh, and, and, and one of my strengths was that very early I intuitively got to know this topic of depression. And I, I could diagnose depression just by looking in the eyes. And so I would sit there and the patient would come in and I look in the eyes, I look at the eyes. As I have an opening conversation, I'm looking in the eyes and oh boy, what a relief, it's not depression. <laughs> and what a drop in my mood, what... what I became depressed every time I saw a depressed patient. It, it was, felt so hopeless. I was sort of angry at myself for, for giving up engineering. You see, one of the reasons I gave up engineering was because I was getting to the point where it was too imprecise a science. You know, I've I, I studied for years. I learned how to do calculus and all of that so I can design a bridge and I take my plans in. The boss says to me, mm-hmm, too thin, too slender, multiply everything by four and redesign the plan. I said, I don't have to make it four times bigger, boss. I've done all the calculations. My design is quite unique. It only has to be like this. Why, why pay four times more for that bridge? He said, factor of safety in other words, we don't know what idiots are going to come and build the bridge and whether they're going to, the materials are going to be inferior. So we, we design and then we multiply by four. That doesn't sound like a precise science to me, does it? So now I'm going to go into psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and, and oh boy, if engineering is not a very precise science, you know what psychology is. You know, hundred million opinions. And here I am, thinking, I was uh, hoping that I would have better skills to deal with depression. And (laughs) it was hopeless. You literally, when you saw a depressed patient, you signed off three years of your life for that patient. Because the depressions that we encountered at that time, and, and I need to make this point, that the depressions that occurred in the 60s, not the depressions we deal with today that much still some of that but that's not the tsunami and those depressions were primarily genetically uh, caused ran in families first thing you do is take a family history see if you can find where all this depression has come from then you sign off three years where you will Sit by that person's side and take them through that misery. Because that was the best you could offer. Sure, we did a lot of shock therapy. And that works by the way. Do not do not have a negative view of that. Uh, the, the antidepressant medications had only come out in the early sixties, didn't know how to use them, side effects were worse than the depression. They were called tricyclics at that point. And they were only moderately helpful. But often the, you know, the, the symptoms, side effects were so bad that the patient would rather have the depression than the side effects. And so you just hung in there. Because that sort of depression had, interestingly, a three-year cycle. And then it would lift. And people like Churchill... Charles Spurgeon. Many, many famous people suffered from this sort of depression. Yes. So for, for three years, Spurgeon talked about his black dog. And then it would live. So, <clears throat> what you did was this. This is a little trick. If, if you want to go back to those years, this is the trick. You, you explored very, very carefully when the first signs of the depression appeared. Because you see, then you counted three years ahead. And oh boy, the joy of finding a patient who's been depressed for two and a half years <laughs> <laughs> with only six months to go. What wow, Hallelujah, Lord, praise you, Lord Jesus, you know. <laughs> it's enough to send you into some sort of spiritual ecstasy. <laughs> you know, and, and that would give you hope. I'm going to preach about hope on Sunday. But, oh boy, that gave, I could give a patient, oh, do you know what? We've only got six more months. Isn't that wonderful? And at about that time, it varies individually, and then the depression would begin to lift, and they'd get a life again. The problem is it's cyclical. And so it's just a matter of time, and the cycle started all over again. I was so frustrated that I said to the Lord, this topic will become my life's focus. This is where I did my half-life shift from the pursuit of success to the pursuit of significance. Can I make a difference here? Well, I've written... I think it's now ten books on that topic. <laughs> I had to keep writing a new book because it kept changing. If you want to know which are the best books, my three of my li- recent books are the best. for the, the Unmasking Male Depression. As we, we, we'll see, male depression is not the same as female depression. The young Korean man who went on this rampage in Virginia is clinically depressed. Same as the Columbine students. Same as every other teenager that's been on a, a rage-fall uh, outburst. It's clinical depression. In this case, they, they suspect there's probably was some psychotic features, but I don't see any psychosis there. This is pure clinical depression, male depression. Um, the, the second book is unva- see, unmasking male depression. That's the problem. It's so heavily masked. that Most men... Most people don't even know the male is depressed. Unveiling depression in women, <laughs> written with my oldest daughter Catherine, and then the third book, Catherine and I wrote, is stressed or depressed for teenage depression, because those are totally separate, different depressions, different depressions. So I, I, I determined that I was going to get on top of this problem, the, the, the issue of depression. I would devote my life to understanding. Researching and, and getting a hold of it. And, and so I, I have a particular uh, you know, interest in this. And I want to read a few verses from Philippians 3, 7, and 8. And I want to make a few theological comments. Uh, let me just backtrack a moment. Um, Panic Anxiety Disorder is a modern phenomenon. Did not exist in New Testament times. It couldn't have existed in New Testament times for one very important reason. The pace of life was too slow. Built into lifestyle was all the time needed for recovery from whatever trauma or stress you experience. Panic anxiety could not have existed in New Testament times. Didn't exist in John Wesley's time, because I often will, will get, uh, you know, some smart Alec question when I talk about stress. Well, you know, John Wesley wasn't concerned about stress. He just gave it all he got, you know. And so how come we are so preoccupied with limiting our stress, living within the box, this idiot heart says. When Wesley and other great Christian leaders in the past, they never worried about all of that. Apostle Paul never gave it much much attention. And it's true, they, because they didn't have to. Because lifestyle had the remedy John Wesley how did he travel about on horseback right what did he do when he was when he was going from village to village around yes and Auburn to all these places what did he do he dropped his reins sat back in his saddle and was either reading a book or the bible and for three or four hours he had nothing to do but just sit on the back of his horse while he ambled down that road didn't matter how long it took didn't matter how slow it went Built into life was recovery. And some of these disorders were naturally prevented because things like adrenaline and cortisol were well within the design limits of God's creation. Now, what happened ten years ago? was the advent of the Internet. It wasn't the car, <laughs> well before that it wasn't the train, or then the car. Because you know when cars came, you know, the people who rode bicycles you know sort of uh, were against the cars because they would drive and, and, and the church leaders totally it was satanic. Cars were Because people would get in their cars and drive it out into the countries on Sundays. Now, they wouldn't be coming to church. So it's obviously from the devil. And, and, and bit, you know, slowly it's been creeping up. So if you, if you were to follow, if we were to, where well, they weren't measuring cortisol all that long ago, but if you were to plot a cortisol chart in time, you would see them um, Advent railways. yeah, you know, that speeded up life a little bit. Then the car speeded it up a little bit more. And it would be climbing, and then suddenly with the advent of the internet, and there's some data to show this, the curve steepens very markedly. The increase in general level of cortisol. And with that, adrenaline. Now, now what did the internet bring? A lot more traumatic issue? No. You see, stress is not about the bad things of life. Let's get that out of the way right now. It's nothing. It's not about the bad things. We had bad things back in Paul's day. I, I love that second last part of Second Corinthians. You've got to read it, man. Just sit there and uh, here he is being accused by the church at Corinth that he wasn't a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, what, "What do you mean I'm not a true apostle? Do you, do you have any idea how much I have, the price I have paid?" And then he goes into three or four chapter two, two or three chapters, he, just describing a litany of what he has had to suffer for Jesus Christ. And yet, he makes it very clear none of that, none of that got him down. What's the difference? But the, it's, you see, it's not the, the bad things of life that has brought about this dramatic increase in stress, it's the good things of life, the good things that the internet has brought. What the internet brought, A, is a dramatic increase in the pace of life, and B, a dramatic reduction in the recovery time that the body needs to be able to survive. The internet opened up it, the electric light was bad because it lengthened the night. Before that, when you had oil or candles, expensive. You didn't, you didn't sit up until midnight. You, besides, you see, nature is, is very clever here. With darkness, a, 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 a gland in the brain called the pineal gland releases something called melatonin. That makes you sleepy. And so, one, this is when we get to talk about sleep tomorrow, one of the ways to improve your sleep quality, to reduce the light in your life, get some of that melatonin going. So, people fell asleep naturally. And they woke up naturally. That's all gone. While the electric light would keep people up until, say, 11 or so, the internet now keeps people up until 2 o'clock in the morning. We had a neighbor on our left side, a single lady in a mid-40s, she's a nurse, has a very stressful job, comes home, you know, wired, still adrenaline, is still pumping like crazy, she enjoys her work. See, that's, that's the thing, it's not the bad things. We avoid the bad things, the bad things in our life, we will take steps to remove. But the good things, that also pumps adrenaline, it keeps out adrenaline and cortisol going, we think is good, so we don't take rid of it. And and she would come home tired, exhausted, and then she'd get her second wind, about eight o'clock in the evening, and then I could see out of my kitchen window uh, the light in her little study, and sometimes the curtains would be open. I'd see her sitting there in front of her computer, two o'clock in the morning. She'd be doing blogging or, uh, you know, communicating She wasn't going out for friends. She was doing all her socializing over the computer. Two o'clock in the morning, still working at that. And what has happened is that the Internet has accelerated the pace of our life. It, It now, generally speaking, occupies more, it was more demanding in our life. And it has reduced the recovery time. By recovery time, I mean time when your adrenal system has no reason to be... Energizing you and keeping you going, but switches off. People can't tolerate low adrenaline anymore. It's very uncomfortable. And, and with that came uh, the tsunami depression, anxiety, particularly panic anxiety. Dramatic increase. So, things have changed since then. Whereas in the late 60s, we looked for that genetic factor. Because that meant the medication would be helpful somewhat. Now, let me not be misleading you here. There is another major type of depression as well. And I'll get to that in a moment. But we, we, we try to find that. Today, today, when I see a depressed patient, I don't even bother to take a family history. Not necessary. because that's not the issue anymore. The ideology, the cause of the depression that is now epidemic, is cortisol, stress and cortisol. <clears throat> and stress eclipse the genetic factor. It gets there before the genes can do their thing. Do you get the point? That in the teen years now, the stress factor, it gets there first. Now, what is, fa- what is fascinating here is that the, the actual microbiology of depression is the same in the genetic form of it as in the stress form of it. So it's the same treatment. It's the same thing that's gone wrong, namely a deficiency in three major neurotransmitters. And that can be shut down by a genetic weakness, or it can be shut down by cortisol. And I'll take it a a step further. You'll see a little down in my... Outline, um, uh, we are designed for depression. Down there, you see that? When cortisol shuts down those neurotransmitters and causes depression, it's doing what it's designed to do. That's part of God's creation. That's how God designed it. Because there is a sense in which that depression is what preserves life. You see, in, in, in creation, there is a hierarchy feeling good is not very high on that hierarchy. <laughs> survival is. Life is more precious than feeling good. And so at a certain point, nature shifts and the, and the issue becomes survival. And when cortisol after 10 minutes kicks in, and that emergency doesn't go away. You see, if you, if you think about it, nature designed us in such a way, uh, by, I, I use the word nature synonymous with God's creation. For me, nature is God's creation. But nature is desi- has designed us to, okay, has a crisis, has an emergency. Now, bad things are stressful. They push the adrenaline up, the fight or flight response, as it's called. Of course it does. But, but nature assumes a more primitive lifestyle. This is modern day life is really out of the box because that's not how we were created. We were created for slow pace, not supersonic jets. And, and therefore, the, um, the, 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 the uh, stress response, the biochemistry of the re- stress response, at first, is designed to help us cope with that crisis. And so here I am, I'm looking for food for my family. I'm, I'm in Africa. I don't know what you did in England. I mean, <laughs> back those in. I, But let's assume, you know, I'm mean, i mean, I'm looking for food for my family, and there's a deer, and oh boy, we haven't had meat for, and we need protein. We didn't call it protein when those days, but they knew they had to hunger for it because they had to get it. There was no other... The vegetarians today have other ways of getting protein. It's sort of artificial ways, but you, know, you can become a vegetarian today because of science, but in those days you couldn't be a vegetarian and live. You had to have protein, see? So there's that deer, and I got my bow and arrow, and I'm, I'm so good at it, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a little weight, but boy, I, and I let go, and I whack it right in the center, and it drops. You know, and I gather up my satchel, and, and I'm walking towards the deer, and suddenly a lion springs out behind the bushes. It says, it's mine. Translated. It's mine. <laughs> and now, now what do I do? Suddenly, whew, my adrenaline is high. My cortisol is high. I've got to get that for my family or we will die. And so m- my nature up gives me what I need to go. And f- I get courage. And you know what adrenaline gives you? It's a feeling of well-being. It's not the time to feeling tired or sad. Suddenly that tiredness is gone. Suddenly that headache is gone i talk about this tomorrow. Adrenaline is, is a, rem- it's a wonderful remedy for a lot of things. Now, I, 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 I go and I, I stare at the line. <laughs> you know, and I, I jump around and I do sort of things. And, and some tribes, they painted their faces with so that you really look scary. The New Zealanders, you know, they, 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 they got their haka thing. Do you know what the haka is? You know, whenever New Zealand plays rugby, don't they do the haka before they? You know, that all comes from the times when now you try to frighten off that other animal you follow, but your adrenaline is pumping like crazy. Now, how long do you think that lasts? Five minutes? Well, you see, cortisol says, "I will give you ten minutes," and the cortisol is released. Now, what cortisol does, it takes the fighting and fleeing thing and says, well, now we are going to have to run and fight. Uh, uh, And so what happens with cortisol, that group of hormones, including cortisone, is that anti-inflammatory agent is released. Because the joints might need lubrication, you see, and and inflammation. And so you get an anti-inflammatory rush into the body to to make it possible to fight or flee in, that's after 10 minutes. And, and, and the cortisol also signals all the fat you've been storing around the middle of your body. And, and pulls energy out of that. Takes all its sucrose out. All the sugar to, to, to feed the muscles. And now, how long do you need that state of arousal? Two weeks. Nature assumes there is no crisis on God's earth. No traumatic experience at all that lasts longer than two weeks. That's nature's assumption. Today, my word, after two weeks, it's only just begun. And then, then, at a crucial point, and it varies a little bit from person to person, Cortisol changes its focus. Now, life preservation takes priority over getting your food. And cortisol's emotional impact at that point, it shuts down memory by causing the shrinkage of a part of the brain called the hippocampus. It shuts down your tranquilizing system by going to the tranquilizer receptors called the GABA or gamma amino acid, that's the name of it, GABA receptors, which that's what gives you tranquility, and blocks those so you are no longer... Now anxiety goes up, you see. That courage that you get from the early stage now vanishes. Now anxiety arises. Now you become scared of the lion. Now you're not going to go fight that line, you want to run away from it. This is meaningful design. This is not accidental, you know, by chance sort of things. This and, and I and I must be honest with you, I I have great difficulty believing that all these mechanisms just evolved without any intelligent design. You follow? I, I can't believe that. The too many Probabilities here. I, I mean, sit down and calculate the probabilities of this happening and that happening and that happening, and all these t- 500,000 things have to happen simultaneously for this to occur. It, 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 you would need, need eternity for that to happen by chance. And every microbiologist I know is a strong believer. And it's their microbiology that makes them strong believers. It's just, but but the point is now now cortisol's trying to protect us. And if only we were just fighting lions, it would work wonderfully. But we're not. we we're, we're fighting bosses from hell. We are fighting. Parishioners who have their axe to grind. We're, we're fighting, you know, getting fired from a job. Fighting, my wife has just walked out on me, or my husband has just abandoned me, or my kid has been arrested for drug possession. We're fighting those things that don't go away in two weeks. And the tsunami is building, building. We add the internet. Oh my. I am a gadget person. I love my gadgets. I build gadgets all the time. I build all my research equipment. My whole physiology laboratory, I built all that equipment. So I'm a gadget person. But I can tell you that we're in trouble. I was at, at breakfast a few weeks ago with... Stephen Sample. Stephen Sample is the president of the University of Southern California, USC. Very famous university. Uh, big football tri- rivals of UCLA. I mean he has <clears throat> been at several universities, it, is uh, clearly one of the top three or four presidents of universities in the United States. Stephen Sample, a wonderful Christian man. Which is unusual For university presidents, because universities are liberal, they are extremely atheistic, etc., etc., etc. And here's a devout Christian, and uh, our president had arranged with him to come and just have breakfast with all the faculty at Fuller, all 200 of us, and it was a wonderful time. I had not met him before. Um, He shared his own spiritual journey. You know, how, how do you function spiritually in the middle of that academic jungle? You know, what, t- tell us about your prayer life. Man, it was a wonderful time. He is a phenomenal individual. Wrote a book recently, I, I forget the name, Stephen Sample. It uh, may be worth checking out on the internet. But... <laughs> But the internet, you know what he said? But this is, we're talking about the internet. You know what he said? I, I'm, we're talking about how do you manage your life. You know. How do, how do you thrive in your life? He said, I thrive by not having an email address. Isn't that great? Yeah, he is the president of a university that's part of the invention of the internet whose departments of science and technology and all that are the ones who are developing all sorts of new gadgets and things for the internet. And the president of that university does not have an email address. He refuses to receive any correspondence by email. And the reason? It drives me crazy. Be no t- I'd have no time. So you can write him a letter, he will respond but I want to see a letter, I want to see good prose, I want to, you know, not this blogging thing, you know, this abbreviated things that they, they send. He has no email address, and he encourages his faculty, thousands of them, not to have email addresses. He's not being very successful. <laughs> I sat there, I think, what a wise man, bucking the system. Yeah, yeah. I, cra- you know, how many emails I had to deal with this morning before I came here? Fifty-two. Huh. I don't need a spam fighter. What I need is something that can read the emails and determine whether it's important or not. That's what I need. You know, uh, uh, late at night, I've got to go and check my email. Now, I'm as guilty as anyone for falling into this trap. And I am seriously considering, since I've listened to some sample, I am seriously considering scrapping my email address. So if you'd let me have your email address, when I decide to scrap mine, I'll send you an email. (laughs) All right, that's a long introduction, but it, it sets the context for what I want to say for the rest of this morning and for this afternoon. Read, read a few verses of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3. If, as a matter of interest, just so you know, I, I, there are really only two books in the Bible that I... If, if, if I would be stranded on an island and you tell me, just you only can choose two books of the Bible to be with you. The two would be Second Corinthians and Philippians. Because that... Most, most of what we really need, you'll find there. But anyway, Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, whatever was to my profit, another way of saying that whatever it was I was striving to be successful at. You get me? My profit, it was gain to me. Whatever I was striving to be successful at, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I've let it go. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now I want you to remember those words because there are two major types of depression. Before I go any further, let me clarify this point. All depression breaks down into two groups, two categories. It's either biological or it's psychological. The biological depressions are called endogenous depression, meaning from within, endogenous, biological. Those can break down into genetic, to stress, to certain diseases and other dysfunctions. So we have that group there. Then we have a group of psychological depressions. And nothing I say this morning should diminish your understanding of the psychological depressions. These are uh, and, and we call it exogenous rather than endogenous. It's from without. It's it's from life. It's what happens in my life that makes me depressed. That's one group. As opposed to it's what happens in my brain and chemistry that makes me depressed is the other group. You follow? So uh, I'm going to put a dividing line here, and whenever I discuss this group here, or have the psychological depressions, okay? And this group here have the endogenous depressions. So, it's just so that you understand, when I'm talking psychological, I'll be here, and, and biological, I'll be there. Of the biological causes of depression, let me just get out of the way, some diseases, like thyroid disease, very bad uh, for, for depression. So, the first thing I do with all my patients I want a full blood screen. I want uh, evaluation of the thyroid. Uh, You just send them back to their family doctor. Because if there's thyroid dysfunction, you're going to have depression, and it's going to be, your hormonal system is going to be influencing it very profoundly. But these depressions have to be treated. These depressions mainly have to be counseled or helped. No medication. There is no medication that helps these depressions. The incidence of these depressions now, one in six. The incidence of these depressions here, 100%. Sooner or later we will all have one of these psychological depressions. Just a matter of time. It's also called reactive depression. Meaning that it's reacting to some life events, see? And we know pretty much what is the primary cause. So let me just highlight it now and I'm going to address it in more detail this afternoon. The cause of these psychological depressions, Freud identified very accurately, it is a response to loss. Get fired from your job. Lose a loved one. Get divorced. Have a really bad childhood and feel like you've lost something there. It's loss, 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 loss. And all of life is loss. From the day you were born, you started losing. Some losses are necessary. Growing up, you give away childhood so you can gain growing up, adult, adulthood. Adulthood some losses are unnecessary. Where I think we can serve our people. You don't thrive well if you can't deal with loss. Get it? No pill for it. It's a process. We have to be, we as God's Children should know how to deal with loss. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He he understood this perfectly. Whatever I strive to achieve, whatever I, I you know, or I, whatever I was driven to be successful at, whatever was to my profit, I now count as loss. He wasn't just dealing with loss; he gave it away. And there's a lifestyle, there's a life attitude that the believer has to have here. You've got to have an eternal life view. This is just temporary, folks. When you lose things now, somehow you've got to find a way to put that in the right perspective. And that is so important, I don't want to overlook it. Because in, our, in this day and age where there's been a very strong move towards Using medications and drug companies push that, and I, I, I hate drug companies, I detest them, uh, they, they're in the business for the wrong reason, they give us a lot of misleading information, the trouble is I know too much about the drug business, you see. And, and, that, and, and, and they would want every one of you in this group to be taking these medications also, and you're wasting your time and your money, because that's not what's going to fix it. It's a readjustment of your thinking and your understanding and your, your beliefs and acceptance, so that you can move on. Because life is all loss, not gain. It's not about gain; it's what you lose and how you deal with it. Okay. On this side is a different matter. So, for the rest of the session, I want to address this issue and, and uh, go through it fairly, fairly quickly. It is a common cold. It's a healing emotion if you cooperate with it. Whether it's biological or psychological, if you cooperate. If you get the help for this one, if you go and get the treatment for it, and you cooperate with it, it's a healing emotion. I've treated scores and scores and scores of depressed people, and afterwards they say, hallelujah, best thing that could have happened to me, because I changed my life. It changed my life. For the better. So it's a good thing in that sense. Don't cooperate with it. It's hell. Um... And let me drive it home. We are designed for depression. Depression is not a result of the fall. There's a a theological teaching that that I think is erroneous. That oh depression only came into the world once we were, were were chased out of Eden. No, 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 no. God created us from the beginning. There is no second creation. God did not, after we left Eden, didn't recreate our brain. He he built in these mechanisms right at the beginning. The, the the thing is that in Eden there was no loss. We chose the loss, and and the fall is think about it, the fall is all about what we lost. That's what it's all about. But it was there from the beginning. This is no this is not and, and that that's very common that the idea that somehow it's it's a, it's a consequence of the fall. That's not good theology. Uh, <clears throat> Prevalence was about one in ten; it's uh, now like one in six. Uh, twice as common in women. Uh, barely one in three get treatment. Barely one in three. That's in the United States. My guess is it a higher percentage here don't get treatment for it. I'm sorry to say, a higher percentage. There's a stronger negative bias here as there is in Australia and South Africa, uh, against the treatment of depression. Because people f- somehow see it as a stigma, but more importantly in Christian circles, we see it as a sign of weakness, as a we've failed to meet God's standards. If, we, if only I lived the godly life, I wouldn't be depressed. That's a Satan's lie. That's a satanic lie. Um, the... It's purposeful and uh, three bad theologies. Just very briefly, um, de- 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 bad theology, depression is God's punishment. It's, that's, that's, that's a lie. Now, the, the problem is this, that people who are depressed feel like they are being punished. Uh, we call it the phenomenology of the depression. How you feel it and experience it is that God has pulled away from me. God has rejected me. It feels like that. And so a lot of television uh, evangelists, those television programs we've got in the States, when they have their fundraising drives and people call in. And you call in and you say, oh, I, I feel depressed. Well, you know what? God's punishing you. Now send your donation and, <laughs> you know. Uh, listen, God doesn't punish, okay? Not, not under the new covenant. He disciplines, maybe. But he has suspended his punishment until the day of judgment. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it's a long theological issue, but I just want to make the point, you really have to reframe this. It's not God's punishment, this is discipline. God doesn't do bad p- things to his people just because you've not complied or sinned. But some, you see, discipline is different. It's not punishment. But discipline, I, I, th- I see discipline more as God not rescuing me from my stupidity. My child, you, you cheated on your income tax. Don't expect me to rescue you. Pay the price for it. See, that's not punishment. That's discipline. And God is in the refining business. He, he, the punishment will come, don't, don't worry that, that, that will come but, but he's covered us with his blood I mean, he's, he's given us forgiveness and there is no and uh, it's, uh, Satan would fan the flames of God's punishment, you, you see, you believe in God but he's really, he's really getting at you through this thing it's not good theology the second thing is, it, 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 it is God withdrawing, and punishing and withdrawing the third one and, and I, I, wonder, I, I'm, I realize here I might be trading on a little bit of thin ice, but let me, let me say it anyway. I'm at that stage, I say it whether you like it or not. And, and, and I've capitalized in my PowerPoint always. There is a common belief, I have several faculty at Fuller who believe this, that all depression is always demonic possession of some sort or operation of some sort. That is not true. That is not true. Now, can some of it be demonic? Yes, of course it can. But let's go deal with it as a natural thing first before we go and explore the other. Because the the natural is so common now that uh, we we play right into Satan's hand by going to... It avoids getting people the help they need to live the, the life that God wants them to live because they're pursuing something... And it takes enormous discernment uh, to, you know, to pers- and and usually in, in in my book, and I've written several articles on this, especially for pastors, that we've got to your first responsibility, you know, if. If, if I have a pain in the lower right abdomen here, and it's intense pain, I don't go and ask you to pray for me to get rid of the demon. I go to the doctor first and I say, do I have appendicitis? You follow? And he examines this. Nothing wrong with that. Body. Well, eventually when I exclude the obvious, then maybe I have to confront the other. But, but, but we, we have to be, you know, really uh, cautious here. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, um, skip over a bit the sources of depression in ministry, uh, except all I want to say is that the vocation of ministry, being in the ministry, does create very unique challenges for depression. Now, both in the stress arena, but also in the loss arena. arena. Pastors experience an enormous amount of losses. You know, every time you preach, there's some, someone, always someone says something negative. You know, and you go home that day and your, your heart sinks. When things aren't going right and, and, and people are, I, I know pastors who are in, situations where their church is basically dying. On oh, my word, you know, the losses there. Pastors are very vulnerable in this area. And, and I, I just hope we can teach our congregations to understand that. You know, we, sometimes just not encouraging as we should. And some cultures are not very encouraging. You know, some cultures by their nature don't encourage and they don't realize just how damaging that can be. So there is, uh, there is enormous... In, in history, a lot of famous people were depressed. Wesley, Calvin, Luther, King David, Elijah, Spurgeon. Only Spurgeon got it right, by the way. Only Spurgeon understood it. Only Spurgeon understood that depression had some purpose in it. And those pastors who are interested might want to read, reread Spurgeon's lectures to his students in the chapter they call The Minister's Fainting Fits where he goes through uh, the reasons why we experience depression. And I can tell you it's as modern and up to date as anything you read in any of my books or anyone else's books. Spurgeon got it right. (coughs) Um, I've talked about uh, much of this, so uh, the stress, I, 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 there's the glucocorticoid, that's the, the, the um, cortisol. Um, the effects of chronic stress, I will cover tomorrow. I, I, want to, I want to get to the major types of depression. I've already identified pure reactive depression, if you f- can find this on your outline. This is this group here, response to loss. And then on this other side, endogenous depression, which uh, by primarily today is the consequence of of stress. Now, let's let's just pause for a moment, and 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 I it's it, it's very important for me to communicate to you the difference between male and female depression. I want to cover this before we take a break, and I will continue this afternoon. Male depression and female depression uh, the the differences are are, are enormous. Um, The, until probably, oh, six or seven years ago, the psychiatric and psychological world believed that male and female depression were the same thing. Unfortunately, the, 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 the group that sought treatment for depression most often were women. And what that did was to shape the research and the clinical experience around female depression. And so what what happened was that um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, which throughout the world is the standard book of, what symptoms make up these disorders, was developed out of female depression. And five or six years ago, myself, several others, sat up and realized this does not fit male depression. I realized that for 30 years of my career, I've been misdiagnosing male depression. Because the manual said, these are the symptoms they were for women. And that's when I sat down and wrote my male depression book because clearly at that point we, were, we, we began to see the difference. Now, now what's, the, what's the main difference between the two? What, what is the primary difference? The primary difference is this, that women feel their depression. They experience sadness, want to cry. They, interestingly, their depression sort of drives them towards connecting with others or trying to get help from others. Male depression is not a feeling-based thing, it's an acting out thing. Males mask their depression very often one way of dealing a male deals with depression is just become a workaholic so you get you go to work and you just uh, sort of immerse yourself in your work males will turn to addicting substances a lot of cocaine users in the United States by men are are depressed men they they self-medicate you see it doesn't feel like depression as a man now the primary the characteristic of male depression is rage, anger, irritability. That bag. That's where you get male depression. Show me an angry man. I'll show you a depressed man. Show me a man who is violent, a man who is abusive. I'll show you a depressed man. And this is where we've been diagnosing male. For years I've seen men like that and I never... What, it never got my attention that what I was seeing was depression it can get them into a lot of trouble I, I can tell you this the young man who, who shot up uh, in Virginia is clinically depressed and if he had only got caught early and they would in, had insisted on uh, on him getting the right sort of treatment maybe that could have helped so the, it's this anger bag and um let me close with a little uh, scenario and I will pick up on it after lunch. I, I'm going to be careful not to go too far in the first session because I make people depressed when I talk about this. <laughs> but I, I really want to lift you up. This, this is not something we need to be depressed about. There is hope here. There is help here. This doesn't have to be the tsunami that it is. I've treated disorder long enough to, I, I, you know what, I love depressed people. Now, I love them. When someone comes in my office and I see a depression, I say, oh, hallelujah, Lord, we can do something with that. There, there are certain disorders I can't do anything about, but this one, I know we can help. But, but just, just, just imagine, is, is this, is this a, 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 a typical of a male depression? He's had a bad day at the office. Things haven't gone by. His, his boss is on his case He's a salesman, he's not, uh, sales aren't doing too well. The boss had, had him in that morning and said, You know what? If you don't improve on sales, I might have to let you go. So he goes home at the end of the day and he goes through the front door, puts his briefcase down. He calls out, Oh, honey, honey, are you there? Uh, it's not been a good day. May, could you just come through to the family room? I want to sit down. I want to talk to you. I want to share this with you. I think that maybe if only I can express my concerns here that, that I could resolve this problem, you know. Um, <laughs> depressed? Is that is typical? That te- te- no? This man says it isn't. All right, let's try another one. Bad day at the office, job says, uh, the boss says, not doing well in your sales, better improve or else, you know, blah, blah, blah. Comes home, kicks the door open, throws the briefcase down, the cat is there. Oh, what a perfect, you know, goes in, sits down, picks up that great pacifier of all masculinity, the clicker. Click, click, click wife comes in. Oh, honey, you home? I didn't hear you come in. She's lying. <laughs> she knows that it's not going to be good. She knows it's not going to be a good day. Oh, honey. She puts on a brave face. My wife used to, when I was Dean, I came home sometimes, and she confronted me one day. She confronted me one day. As I opened the door, she was sitting there on a chair opposite the front door. She knows exactly. And uh, she said, Go outside now, <laughs> dump all your anger, put a smile on your face and come right on back in. <laughs> I don't want you otherwise. You know, I got the point, I got the point. But, but you know, she, she's trying to be helpful. Honey, it's been a bad day, do you want to talk about it? No. <laughs> click, click. She gets the silent treatment. See, for many men, that, that rage, that anger, you just stuff it down and it shuts down any wanting to connect. You don't want to be sociable. You don't want to, you know, uh, and love it tight any kid who comes in then and misbehaves because they're going to get it, you know. And, and, and you fester and it just lies there. Uh, maybe you'll sleep it off and, and, and start a new day fresh, but often it accumulates, you see. That 's male depression <clears throat> and and we have not recognized it we 've not encouraged men I, 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 I encourage you to start you know, men 's groups <clears throat> and where men can really begin to identify now now part of the problem is we 've got to take the stigma away we 've got to destigmatize it i in my doctor of ministry courses with my pastors, I often encourage them that, Not when you are depressed. Do not go into the pulpit when you are depressed. I want them to be transparent. I think as believers we have to be more transparent. I have revolutionized several churches by having the pastor get in the pulpit and say to his congregation, I want you to know that for this last year I have been clinically depressed. It's really been bad. But I finally got some help. And now, hallelujah, I've got this behind me. And I want you to know this because many of you are experiencing the same problem revolutionize the church. Come out of the closet. And, and if, uh, don't do it when you are depressed. You know, don't get in the pulpit and say, you know, I am so down today. I am so mad at this world. And, and lots of you, I, you, yeah, you, you're part of the problem, you know that? And, and yes, yeah, Mrs. Jones, you're sitting right there smugly, but you have no idea how, how that insult, you know, how much loss I... Exp- don't do that don't do that but to be transparent about getting it under control can make all the difference well how does one get it out of, under control and what do we do about reactive depression and I'll have a little more time this afternoon and we'll we'll get into that in the meantime sort of uh, put a smile on and have a happy face right this is closed in the word of prayer for the session our Father, we thank you for, we thank you for your wonderful creation. We know that at times when we abuse it, when we don't understand it, or when we're ignorant about it, that it often hurts us even more. Forgive us for that, and help us to be wise. In understanding, help us to be uh, encouragers of each other. Help us to open their hearts to understand that there is help that can be had. And it is help that comes from your hand because it comes from your creation. For this we will give you the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. I haven't talked about what makes women different, and we'll save that for this this afternoon.